This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Leon Logan-Nathan, and uh, with me is a smirking co-host, Mr. Peter Gowers. I'm just not quite sure what my voice is going to sound like, so I'm, uh, that's the reason why I'm smirking. Bit gravelly, mate, but uh, you know, Jimmy Barnes is a. <laughs> yeah, he's made a career out of it. Yeah, that's right. true. Can't scream quite like him, though. Yeah, right. So, what's the go, mate? What's, uh, what's happening there with the voice? You see, the best thing that COVID ever brought to this country was the common cold and flu went bye bye. But uh, of course, now that people are allowed out and about again, it's. Uh, it's made its way back into society so i've had the big c19 check it's a negative but uh just a common cold just a common cold right but uh, if you stop washing your hands for 20 seconds and all that sort of stuff so. you see it's funny <laughs> I, I i said at the time it's amazing we um it took a global pandemic for people to realize that they had to wash their hands um i was pretty good at it before and i'll continue to do so so uh yeah but I don't know. Just I think as soon as the face masks came off, yeah. the, the the flu and the cold just went zoom again. Right, right. And when are you back in Darwin? I'll be back in about fourteen days. Fourteen days, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Hmm. Me too. Me too. Mate, uh, we've got a, a, another guest for the podcast uh, this week, and. Uh, Gives me great pleasure to introduce you. I, I've met uh, I've met him before, but uh, I don't think you have. It, it will give it gives me great pleasure to introduce you and our listeners to um, someone who has a very important job here in Darwin, the Vice Chancellor of Charles Darwin University, Professor Scott Bowman. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Leon, and uh, hi, Peter. Welcome, Scott. Thanks very much. Right, you've got a you've got a very interesting room uh, there, Scott, because I can see uh, it's sort of you've got a mirror behind you, and uh, I, I can see the computer, so it's it's <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite uh, unique. And then you've got a guitar and a keyboard, so you you play you play anything? Oh, look, I, I I'm trying to learn the guitar very badly. Um, I I retired, which you might find interesting. Uh, just before COVID, and uh, one of the things I tried to do during retirement was to learn to play the guitar. Right. Well, I, I actually did know that, and I only found that out today because uh, what we generally do on the podcast is we uh, – well, I do at least. Uh, I type in the name of the, the guest about five minutes before they come on, and um, I typed in your name, and to my uh, surprise, I wasn't expecting this, uh, there's a Wikipedia entry for you. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. Uh, so I went on there to have a look, and sure enough, it says that you actually retired in uh, 2018. I sure did, yeah. that was So I was Vice-Chancellor of Central Queensland University, and I did that job, um, I like to say 10 years, but actually it was nine and three-quarter years. So they actually mocked up a long service award, the only one ever which said nine and three quarter years. Uh, but I was there for about 10 years and um, 
we were probably in our mid-50s and uh, decided, um, when I say we, uh, that's not the royal we, that's Anita, my wife and I, decided, you know, we love the university, she worked there as well, but decided it was time to do something else. So we bought a truck, uh, fitted it out, and the plan was to hit the road and uh, be really driving around the world for 10 years. So we were going to ship over to Vladivostok. So it's probably quite lucky that we're not in Russia somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, but let's just say our timing wasn't that good So uh, uh, with the pandemic. So that just didn't happen. So I spent 18 months trying to learn to knit and play the guitar. Sorry, did you say you were going to go to Vladivostok? Yeah, we were going to ship the truck over to Vladivostok, then drive over the top through Siberia, probably drop down to see some friends in Mongolia and India, uh, and maybe Nepal, if I got the guts up to drive there, and then over to Eastern Europe, Europe, stick around Europe for a couple of years, then do a big circuit around Africa, down to South Africa and back up the other side, then ship over to Nova Scotia and drive from really the Yukon and Alaska down right to the bottom in um, Argentina. So that was the plan. But uh, <laughs> all I've got to show for it is a big pile of maps. <laughs> and a trip to the NT. And a trip to the NT. Uh, that is incredible. <laughs> Uh, look, I've, I've we've run into people on this podcast that have done um, some things like that, but not as extensive as that. What sort of truck do you have? Well, the funny thing is, I haven't done any of it. <laughs> I know, but the fact that you planned it, I can talk about it, but I haven't actually done it. Uh, we bought something called an Earth Cruiser, uh, which is just a go anywhere four wheel drive vehicle. Um, and it's pretty comfortable, nice queen size bed, massive batteries and solar, so we can run uh, uh, air conditioning off the batteries. It's got no gas on board because you you encounter different gas appliances all around the world, so it's fully electric. Even the barbecue is electric that runs off these massive lithium batteries. So it's a great it's a great truck for exploring Australia and the Northern Territory, but not really what we bought it for. It's appropriately named for the trip you were planning on because you're pretty much going to span the entire Earth. Yeah, and and we have got some friends out there that are doing it, and uh, you know they got stuck some of them for months and months and months all over the world, but they're they're all. Uh, uh, traveling again now, but I guess my life and our life has taken a different track at the moment. Mm. So I've, I've typed in Earth Mover into Google and it's just shown me a whole lot of uh, caterpillar trucks. Is that <laughs> no, <it's, laughs> try, try Googling Earth Cruiser, Earth Cruiser Australia, right. and uh, you should see what we're talking about. Oh, here we go. And we'll just um, pause the podcast now so everybody listening can do the same too, Leo. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a great visual thing, is it? A great visual <laughs> thing, I should say. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I've never heard of this, Scott. Yeah, there's probably 
only been about 100 made in this country, but the company split up a while back and one of the partners went over to America, so they're building them in America as well. Yeah, and they, they can't be found at the Mercedes dealership either, Leon, so maybe why you haven't heard of one. Right, right, right. <laughs> but, Leon, you could, they actually do build them on a Mercedes Unimog, so if you get oh, there one, you go. you have to go for the Unimog version. Right, right. Yeah, I can see this now. Like, uh, that's uh, that's interesting. Iveco, is that that's the... The, the base unit on mine is an Iveco, but they do also build them on a Mercedes as well. I'm not as rich as you, though. You, know, so. <laughs> you keep saying that, but in actual fact, I think vice chancellors do pretty well on, from an, on a salary basis. Oh, uh, we- <laughs> Walrus <laughs> church mice. It's, it's all exaggerated tales. Okay. Well, it's all publicly available information, Scott, so we know. <laughs> okay, I can that. We do pretty well. <laughs> In fact, uh, we we have uh, we do a, a podcast every week with um, uh, with a fellow by the name of Chris Walsh, who is the editor of the NT Independent newspaper. And uh, from time to time, he, well, not from time to time, he almost, well, as, as Peter says, he delivers the Panama Papers every week. Um, and at, at one point, uh, he um, was doing some, some stories on the Bachelor Institute. And that's when we learned about how much vice chancellors get paid. And we, we were quite surprised. It's uh, really very healthy. And I'm sure you earn every penny, of course. Look, I, I'm not sure we do. I guess I think I'm probably now. This is sounds silly. The poorest, one of the lowest paid vice chancellors. Look, and I, it is on the public record. I earn about the full package with superannuation and everything. It's about six fifty a year, yeah. which is a tremendous pay. If you look where I came from, with my parents, I mean, that is just unbelievable uh, but some of them are upon you know well over a million i look i i think probably vice chancellors pay have got elder kilda uh, over the last or well, 15 20 years um, you know they've just sort of taken off and, and gone mad um, so do I earn six times what some of our people at the university earn uh, Probably not. Mm. Who, who signs off on that, Scott? Who comes up with that figure? Oh, look, it's the council of the university, the chancellors. So okay. we decide on that. I mean, it, it, it's quite strange. So there's a lot of talk now about vice chancellors pay and has it got out of control and how do we get it in control? I think one of the reasons that it did get out of Kilder is that probably 15, 20 years ago, there was a really push, big push to put business people onto the council of, of universities. And, uh, you know, we brought in captains of industry to come into universities with the thought that they could become more business orientated. And I think a lot of those chancellors came in and said, oh, well, if this person was working in industry with this background and these qualifications, they'd be earning way up here. Uh, and I think that's when it started that the vice chancellor's pay sort of went sort of through the roof. But as I said, you know, it's uh, yeah, I, I, it, I think it is out of, of Kilda. Um, when I was at CQU, I you know made sure that I tried to keep my salary right at the bottom of the pile. 
So it's interesting. I think the two lowest paid VCs are me and uh, Brian Smith at the ANU, uh, Australian National University. And, you know, Brian's an incredible guy, Nobel Prize winner. Um, I got a 25-yard swimming certificate, so I'm not quite <laughs> Close. But, yeah, it's an interesting subject. Yeah. Well, look, what we tend to do on these podcasts, um, Scott, is to uh, – get a person's life story, um, not quite in a nutshell, I'd say, but uh, certainly uh, we, we want to go back and, and find out, you know, a bit about you where, you, where you were born, where you grew up, and, of course, from your accent, you, you've given a little bit of that away. Why don't you take us right back and, and talk to us about your, um, your roots? Um, yeah, sure. Well, I, I come from a, a, a fairly large village stroke small town in the UK called Burton Latimer. You're Googling away again. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, when you gave I him completely, the... I completely missed that, by the way. Burton, <laughs> did you say Burton? Burton. Yeah. Burton. Burton Latimer. Burton Latimer. Right. Um, which sounds very posh, much posher than it is. <laughs> but uh, it's a small town, and I think it's about a population of 7,000, but you're going to tell me now it's 7,304. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's in Northamptonshire, and my mother was evacuated there in the war, uh, and my father was stationed there. Just he was a dispatch rider in the war, and he was stationed there just before he went over on D-Day. Um, and they got together, and the family stayed in Northamptonshire, which is where this village is. And I was brought up there. Um, if you ask me, what what did your father do? I can't tell you because he had so many jobs. Mm. He was an unskilled uh, worker. He worked in factories, boot and shoe factories. Uh, aluminium foundries, he was a milkman. Um, and I think like people of his generation that were unskilled and uh, didn't have too much education, he went wherever the money was. So, um, you know, you, you went to, to look after your family. If there was a job down the road that paid more, then you went and got it. And uh, uh, my mum also worked in factories. Um, so... Look, I can't give you a real log cabin story. You know, we were never hungry. Uh, there was always, you know, it was a it was a great household. There was a lot of love, not a lot of value of education. So all of my family, brothers and nephews, knew to the day when they were fifteen and three quarters. Because in the UK, when you were fifteen and three quarters. On the yeah. dot, that's when you were legally allowed to leave school. Yeah. They all knew and they walked out of school on that day uh, to go into various uh, uh, sort of work. So my brother brother actually left before then. He became, um, which is quite strange to think about this now, but a boy soldier in the army when he was about 15. Um I often think about that because you hear about these uh, countries, particularly in Africa, that take these child soldiers. And yet, yeah, when I was a kid, you know, Britain was taking 15-year-olds. But anyway, so he went into the army. He's now a, a truck driver, absolutely great guy, uh, having a great life being a truck driver. And my other brother, older brother, he's uh, 
uh, a digger driver, well, um, what we've got backhoe, I guess, in Australia, mm. driver on the building sites. Um, so that was the kind of family. So as I said, we weren't poor. You couldn't call us poor. Um, at Christmas, there were always a ton of toys around but never any books. So I've got back in my office, I've got one book uh, that I had one Christmas, I think it's 1971. Um, and that was probably the only book I ever remember being bought. So education wasn't a big deal. Hmm. Saying that my, sorry. Saying that, I think my mother was very bright. So, I, I mean, she's, when she was in London as a kid, she uh, passed a scholarship to get into a grammar school, but her parents said, um, no, there's no way you're going to be going. She's from the East End. You're not going to be stuck up and <laughs> book her out of school. And she worked in a button factory to start with. <laughs> right. um, I found listening to your accent there, um, it kind of, this is what I'm finding quite surprising because – you know, whenever we interview people from the UK, you know, if they live, you know, 100 kilometres away from each other, you can there's, there's a different accent. Yet your accent is, is reminding me so much of Rick Stein. And I just looked at where Rick Stein is from, Padstow, and that's like 300 miles from where you are. So is it is it like... Why is that? I mean, is it that all of the South sounds like that? Or? Well, that's, it's really interesting because Padstow is a long way away from where we uh, uh, where we lived. And you are right about accents. So, you know, there was a village. You literally walked across a couple of fields, across a river, over a railway line, and you're in the next village. We used to, I'm going to, uh, I probably can't swear on this. We used to take the Mickey, I'll clean that up, out of the people in that village because they talked funny. And yeah. so, uh, so this is, but this is a terrible accent. Um, so my accent, uh, obviously Northamptonshire, but then I lived in London for quite a while. I, my mother's a Cockney, my father's a broad, thick-speaking Yorkshireman. Then we lived in Lancashire and then over to Australia. I seem to pick up the worst of accents. Um, we were talking about the Ascent Light and I often wonder whether I would have made Vice-Chancellor in the UK. Maybe, maybe not, but this accent would not be the kind of accent that you would find in most vice chancellors. Uh, this, this is an accent which is not Oxford or Cambridge. This is the worst of the worst. No, so I, I don't know whether I would have got there. And, and that is the great joy, revelation, incredibleness of Australia. That you know, you can, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. No, I, you you know there isn't that class structure. You're not judged on how you speak, oh, yeah. um, and that was wonderful coming from the UK, which has an incredible class system, which yeah. is almost impossible to understand the class system. If you think in Britain that there's an upper class, middle class, and working class, you, you ain't got a clue. Yeah. You know, you know, I come from the working class and there were a thousand subsets of the working class. There was always someone to look down on. 
It's good to know, isn't it? It's good to know. And, you know, I did have one cousin that was a carpenter. He'd actually done an apprenticeship, and he was like aristocracy. He, right. he, he had a train. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you said your mother's from uh, the East End, so did she have like a Cockney accent? Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess you never – you never let hear your parents' accents, do you? But she did. Uh, and my aunts and uncles, they have Cockney accents from that side of the family. Um, so, yeah. So I, I, I was, in, you know, I really, for some reason, uh, you know, wanted to stay on at school. So I stayed on after 15 and three quarters and went into year 11 and 12, which was unheard of in my family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I screwed up big time, you know. I, I I did all the partying I should have done at university. I actually did in year eleven and twelve, <laughs> and and failed year eleven and twelve. So I didn't go to university. No university would have me. Uh, didn't Were you get planning to go to university? I really wanted to do medicine. I really wanted to be a doctor. Right. But I couldn't get in to do anything i mean nothing uh so if you had one a level and i had one solitary grade e a level you could get into the local hospital to train to be a radiographer right you know now i wouldn't get anywhere near a radiography course (laughs) (laughs) now the grades are way up here somewhere but i could go and do a two-year diploma based in a hospital northampton general hospital and so i went to train to be a radiographer right and a radiographer is someone that reads x-rays right well not in australia it's changed a bit in the uk but back in the day the radiographer takes the X-ray. So we're the ones that say, breathe in, hold it. Mm. And if, you, if you're a good radiographer, you remember to tell them to breathe again. <laughs> uh, but And then the radiologists who are specialist doctors, they actually read the X-ray. So I was taking the X-rays. Yes, yeah. yes. And, right. And, and, and so you had to train two years to do that. So you trained for two years to do that. So, you know, how how does someone that failed school, didn't, couldn't get into university, end up running two universities now? Well, uh, while I was at radiography school, I met my wife-to-be. So we met on the back of a truck in the middle of the Sahara Desert on a, one of those expedition things that you go on. And uh, she was a medical student at the time. And kind of, you know, when you're young and you meet up and we got talking, and one thing she said, which I thought was a bit forward of her, actually, she said, if you want to be with me, you've got to be prepared to go and live in Australia. (laughs) (laughs) I was only thinking about this evening. I wasn't really thinking much beyond that. But she'd come over on a gap year uh, to Australia and just, had an incredible time and just fallen in love with Australia. And probably the most depressing time in her life is when she went back to England and thought, God, I've made a real mistake here. I should have stayed in Australia, you know, just uh, overstayed on the visa. <laughs> um, Makes total sense. Yeah, exactly. So we, we got together and she was in London, so I moved to London. Uh, couldn't get a job as a radiographer. No one would take me as a radiographer, which is probably a really good 
good thing. Um, so I got a job uh, driving a truck around London delivering rubber goods because <laughs> uh, I somehow bluffed my way that I knew London like the back of my hand. So I spent at least 70% of the time completely lost. You know, it was <laughs> before, before yeah, Google Maps. Yeah. All you had was an A to Z with a million <laughs> street names. So I then got a job as a radiographer and did radiographer sort of all over London for a few years. Uh, and then I did an extra call, a higher diploma, and then went into teaching. There was a guy's hospital in London. They were looking for a student teacher. So I went to become a student teacher, somehow managed to get that job, then did a teaching diploma and qualified. And I could see that radiography was going to go into universities. So... And physiotherapy had gone in and OT, everything was moving into you. And I knew radiography in the end would make that move. So I decided I'd go and get a degree. I need a degree now. Uh, but I didn't want to go back and do a bachelor's. So I somehow sold myself into a master's of politics and government degree. Now, that was quite bizarre because I remember going for the interview and making this very strong case that being able to take a chest X-ray was equal to a bachelor's degree in politics, so you've got to take me into this master's. And somehow they did. So I, I did a master's in politics and government. I was really, you know, really interested in politics at that stage. Uh, got the master's and ended up being one of only, I think, about five radiographers with a degree in, in the UK. And then my career just went like that. I ended up getting a head of school job very young uh, up at Lancaster University. Uh, and then by interesting means, got the chance to come over to Australia and be the head of clinical sciences at Charles Sturt Uni and then just sort of work my way up the, the ladder from there. Okay, so your Wikipedia uh, entry needs to be edited. Um, it says here you were the principal lecturer at London South Bank University. Was that before or after Lancaster? No, so what happened, I went to Guy's Hospital. I must have a look at that. I didn't realise it was in Wikipedia. <laughs> I must go and put lots of really good stuff, lies in there about me. And, and a picture, that would be really good. <laughs> so, uh, well, that wouldn't be so good. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I went to Guy's Hospital. So I was, I don't know, a, a lecturer or principal lecturer at Guy's. And the university that guys transferred into was Southbank University. So went to Southbank for a little while and then from there up to St. Martin's College, which was part of Lancaster University. Then Chester University. Then okay, university. Hang on, hang on, hang on. So there's a couple of things there, loose ends that I just want to tie up. Sure. One of the things that you said that kind of pricked up my interest was you met your wife in in the Sahara on the back of a truck in the Sahara Desert. Yeah. What 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 were you doing there? Oh well, we we were just on those things that kids do. You know that uh, it was an Exodus Exodus expedition, uh, which we kind of uh, booked to go on. So it went down through Spain uh, and then into Morocco and then down into the Sahara, um, and you kind of do that. 
that kind of trip. And that's that's really where the around the world trip came up because we spent all the day talking about all this travel we were going to do. And then, of course, we got into kids and careers and it never happened. And then when we hit 55, 56, <laughs> you know, we're still really relatively young. Let's jack it all go <laughs> off around the world. And then uh, Wuhan came along. Right. So, but it's because it just sort of fascinates me because from what the way you were describing your family, they don't, it doesn't sound like anyone in your family would have left um, uh, Burton Latimer. You know, um, so you, you obviously, and you also said you were the only one that went, you know, finished school. So you were sort of like uh, the, the apple that had fallen far away from the tree. Yeah, completely different to the rest of the family. And the family, you know, in lots of ways really don't understand what I do. They're, they're, they're very proud of me, very proud, but they're not quite sure what they're proud of. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But to be honest, I am my mother. This, You're looking at my mother and my mother, you know, incredibly energetic person. She did travel. My, you know, um, we, we did go on a couple of overseas holidays, which was none of the other family did. They took us once to Yugoslavia and once to, once to Spain. That was very unusual. Um, she was always got some harebrained scheme to do one thing or another. Uh, she was always organising parties. And, you know, I think if she had done that scholarship, she would have gone on to some incredible things. Uh, but then the war came, I guess. So I think my personality comes a lot from my mother. My father was just a, a really, everyone loved my father, just a plotter, a really nice guy, and followed in my mother's, the chaos that my mother left in her wake. <laughs> now, you mentioned uh, the war. Uh, so, And did you say previously that y your, your father participated in D-Day? Yeah, Dad went over on D-Day uh, and he was a dispatch rider, so riding a motorbike. And I think I'd always thought, yeah, oh, okay, he was a postman kind of. He, in the war, he acted as a postman. And I hadn't given it an awful lot of thought. And, you know, it's one of those cliches. He was one of those guys never, ever spoke about the war, you know, just wasn't interested in the war. His medals, he won medals. He gave them to my older brother to play with in the garden. They all got lost in the garden. He just was not interested one little bit, never went to remembrance, praise or anything. Um, the only time I ever heard him talk about the war is he came to Australia and we did a big drive, and, you know, one of these big drives we do in Australia. And he was sitting next to me in the front of the car and I, I'm not sure what triggered him, uh, but he did start talking and in a very jovial way about being in the war and being involved in tank battles because he was in the tank regiment and the tanks would be having a battle. So the Panzer tanks and the British tanks would be firing each other. And he would be the dispatch rider. He'd go to the lead tank, get the orders, and then ride round to the other tanks, giving the orders out. And I was thinking, 
I'm, I'm, I'm really trying not to swear here. I'm being so good for you, Liam. Uh, but much, much appreciated. I was thinking, goodness, <laughs> this guy's, there's a tank battle on. The tanks are trying to destroy each other, and this guy's riding around on his motorbike. And so I did a bit of research and actually found, you know, it was a really dangerous job in the war, you know, to be a dispatch driver. So, uh, yeah, so that's, that's what he did in the war. Uh, and then, as I said, came out and just looked after her and loved after us all, but did lots of unskilled work. Interesting, isn't it? It's just they were a funny family. It was a funny family. I came home from school. He got made redundant once, and I came home from school, and he was kind of putting this boarding up in the in the in the front of the house. And I said, "What are you doing, Dad?" He said, "We're making a shop." <laughs> <laughs> he boarded off the staircase and the rest of the house and the front room, our lounge. They opened a shop. It was that strange family. Fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, right, and and obviously he he wasn't uh, affected at all by well, it didn't sound like he was affected at all in any negative way or PTSD or anything like that from riding no. a motorbike between tanks in the middle of a battle. I mean, crikey, that's astounding. I didn't see any evidence at all of it. No evidence, and I've got so my mother's family. There were five other sisters and five other men that were in the same boat that went to war. One of them I didn't know. He died before I can remember. But the other four, plus my dad, uh, I never ever saw any evidence of the war having that negative impact. Uh, four of them never spoke about the war. Just wasn't a thing that they ever talked about. One of them... Uh, my uncle John never stopped talking about the bloody war. Um, the, he, he was either, and he had a very long war. So he went off to war and was away for five years and, and fought right up through Italy. I think he left his daughter, you know, when she was more or less newly born and she was five or six when he came back. So he had a very tough war and fought in, in uh, was in India as well. And then in Europe, he, he talked about the war on site, and as kids, we loved it, you know, because we were getting the war stories that we weren't getting from the rest of the family. Look, they must have been infect- affected in some ways, but maybe not as much as other wars. You know, I think it's, you know, the Second World War, it was almost a righteous war, wasn't it? You know, they were heroes. They were seen to have been done doing something quite righteous and quite heroic, and was seen like that. I mean, I really do pity the people went, that went to Vietnam where, who came back and were spat on and, you know, just, you know, it, that must have been terrible. Uh, so, you know, if, yeah, so that's interesting. Hey, you haven't mentioned, did you, do you have any siblings? Yeah, yeah, so i got two brothers. An older brother, Russ, who's 12 years older than me, uh, my, I, my interesting story, my mother fell pregnant and lost the baby uh, right at the end of the pregnancy. I was stillborn. And I was born one year to the day on the same date one year later. Wow. Now, that did. Now, if you wanted to see trauma, that was where the trauma was in my family. My mother never got over losing that yes. baby. Yes. And, in fact, 
you know, quite traumatically, I can remember, uh, you know, all going out roaming the streets looking for this baby. She was obviously had a lot of mental issues and, you know, my younger brother, we can remember her going out when she threatened that she was going off to commit suicide down on the train lines. And, uh, but because she could never find that baby, uh, she adopted my little brother, Steve. So he was adopted sometimes, sometimes later. And that seemed to fill the gap there a bit, but that, and I didn't really think about this. Well, I thought about it, obviously, but I actually, didn't link it with my PhD because years later I did a PhD and that PhD was all about uh, fetal abnormalities and fetal loss in pregnancy and interviewed lots of women. And I've never put two and two together that there was any link between my PhD and my mother. But someone, I was telling them the story about my mother and they just saw it straight away. You know, why, why were you attracted to doing a PhD in that area? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, actually, there's an obvious link there. So, so that is really interesting because you, you said you um, went to university to do a, uh, a degree in politics, right? Yeah, so I got very interested in politics. When I was working at Guy's Hospital, it was the time, you know, it was Margaret Thatcher, uh, the health service, it, it was just great. I mean, the UK was on fire. You had the miners' strike. You had the, the city of London taking off. You had this massive social divide between the rich south and the poor north, the miners and the stockbrokers. You had Thatcher in there completely reversing the welfare state. And, you know, to find yourself in the middle of all that, you, you know, I just got fascinated with politics uh, and wanted to know more and went to uh, South Bank Poly, which became Guildhall University, and it, it, it was just like having blinkers taken off. You know, to actually start to be educated uh, was incredible. And, and that was a master's degree, is that right, in politics? That was a master's, yeah, master's in politics. In so Scotland. don't you need to do a bachelor's first or...? Well, if you can bullshit a lot, if you can go through an interview and really bullshit really well and you find a university that's really desperate for students, you can actually uh, get in. But it, 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 the first, yeah, the first few months were really difficult. I know my first essay was, I think, a, a, a 3,000-word essay on something or other, and I ended in 26,000 words. Wow. Jesus. Which was stupid. Uh, <laughs> I got a pass, though. I don't think you get a pass for that now. <laughs> Obviously, they didn't read it. <laughs> right. So, so you, you, you didn't have a bachelor's degree. You, got a, you did a master's in politics. And then uh, you did, a, a, what, another master's in business administration? Did you, is it an MBA? Well, ne next I did the doctor of philosophy degree. So I did a doctorate. And, and the doctorate had absolutely nothing to do with the masters. Well, there's an interesting story. So I, I get I'm teaching radiography. So I'm teaching people how to take chest X-rays and skull X-rays and all that stuff. 
And suddenly I found I got this master's in politics and government, which I'm really ultra interested in and wanted to teach it. So in the UK, we have the Open University, which is the, Europe's biggest university. Incredible. I think the, one of the most incredible institutions in Europe. So I thought, I'll go and teach politics at the Open University. So I looked at the courses that I could teach, and there was British politics. So I, you had to tick three things that you were willing to teach. So I ticked British politics, and there was contemporary political theory. So I ticked that. And then I looked, and they didn't need tutors for anything else in politics. So I went through the list, and there was this thing called professional judgment and decision-making. And I, I didn't have a clue what it was, but I just ticked it. <laughs> and you guessed it. The one that, they, that I got to teach was professional judgment and decision-making. So I got really interested in judgment and decision-making and how that's applied to health. And that's where I did my uh, PhD in. So, you know, my life... You were lecturing in something that you I, I had no qualifications in at all. I, I kept one page ahead in the book. Yeah. <laughs> the, worst, uh, the worst example of that was years later when I was at the University of South Australia down in Wyala, and I was the dean of the campus, and we taught social work, which had a, a, a subject in philosophy. And there was only, in Wyala, there was only one person in the whole of Wyala at that time who knew anything about philosophy. <laughs> And he went sick, and they had no one to teach philosophy. And they said, well, you, you know, you've got to go. You're the only person who can teach this. And I said, well, I know nothing about philosophy. And uh, they said, well, you've got a doctor of philosophy degree. <laughs> so there I found myself, and I really knew nothing. And, and the more I read these bloody books on philosophy, the less I understood, you know. I, I think, therefore, I am. And these strange philosophers have locked themselves in orphans and abandoned their children and the mind, body, and the existence of God. And I'm thinking, try not to swear again. Oh, dear, this is difficult. And then, then I had a really interesting... I thought, I, I worked a way of getting out of this because I used to teach a night course, which I really enjoyed, to University of Third Age. So these are older people that come into university and, and they're just hungry for knowledge. You could say, you know, uh, I'm going to teach a course on the history of biro pens. Yeah, we're signed up for it. Yeah, we want to do it. <laughs> so I was actually teaching a course on uh, the science and physics of Star Trek. <laughs> oh, wow. I would have signed up for that. So we were going, you know, into, you know, what, what's a warp drive? Could a warp drive actually ever work? You know, so we, we were discussing all those things. And there's these people that are thirsty for knowledge. So I went to the uh, philosophy. Well, I said to them, these universities, how would you like a course on philosophy? And they said, yeah, 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 we want to do philosophy. I said, great. I then went to the students and I said, look, Obviously, I'm a doctor of philosophy, so I know everything about philosophy. <laughs> but I don't see the value in just me just sprouting out just everything I know. The best way to learn a subject is to teach it. 
So what I want you to do is divide us a course on philosophy and teach it to the university of third age. So, and I cut the course into bits and they all went out and put all this work and then taught the university of third age. It was brilliant. One of the best teaching experiences I've had because I didn't have to do much. I just sat in the class and watched them teach in the uni of the third age. And then I thought, God, I'm onto a good thing here. This is money for our growth. So I went to the union and I said, would you be interested in helping me assess the students? So I got them doing the assessment as well. So I didn't even have to do the marking. (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing what you can get away with in universities. Right, yeah. But just going back to your PhD, I mean, a PhD is no joke, right? I mean, it is... It is, uh, (laughs) even if you can talk your way out of it, it is still a lot of work. You did a PhD in clinical decision-making, according to this Wikipedia uh, entry. Uh, What did you contribute to that body of knowledge? Uh, Now, I can't be flippant on this because otherwise (laughs) I might come and take it away. I contributed greatly to the field. <laughs> but what I, I found interesting, it was an interesting PhD because I actually took some very analytical decision-making methods that were developed actually in the mining industry. So the, the, the miners have to decide where are we going to go and prospect. It costs a lot of money to put a exploratory well or mine or shaft into the ground to look if there's anything there. And they have a body of knowledge that they use and it's called decision analysis to make those decisions. Where are we going to drill this hole? And I thought it would be, and it had been used a little bit in the United States for helping patients come to some decisions. You know, if you're going to have an operation, this is an operation that could cure you but you could go blind during the operation. Are you going to have the operation? And you can use decision analysis to work that through. Where mine was slightly different, I took that tool, and I think where mine was novel is I use that as a research methodology. So I interviewed a lot of women that had either had fetal abnormalities, fetal deaths, um, all those terrible things, and... I use that with them to look around the decisions that they would have liked made about them. And then I did the same with the practitioners to see how they came to their decision making. So yeah, it was, it, it was interesting. And what we came up with out of it was a code of practice about breaking bad news in ultrasound, right. which, which was is- kind of interesting. That is very interesting because normally radiographers don't say anything, do they? They just take the photos, uh, and and you know, despite the fact that the uh, the patient wants to know, and they know that you know, um, I, I know from experience, <laughs> they just don't say anything. <laughs> yeah, so you're you're quite right. In the UK, that's changed a lot. So radiographers, if you just went in for a plain X-ray, most radiographs are now read by radiographers so the radiographers are doing that and i did some work on that many many years ago and start was right at the beginning of that trend in the uk not in australia so in australia the radiographers take the images and the they go off to be read by the radiologists it's much more difficult in ultrasound so in ultrasound you are sitting 
very close to the patient, you know, touching them. Well, you're touching the patient as you're scanning them. And you are quite right. Radiographers don't say anything. But when you're scanning, you're communicating. You don't have to say anything. I mean, imagine that you're going along and uh, during a pregnancy and the sonographer starts scanning and it all says, yes, there's the baby and look, there's the little baby's hand waving at you and then stops talking. Yes. Doesn't look you in. We've all been there. Doesn't look you in the eye, just looks at the screen and kind of goes silent, doesn't answer any of the questions. So you can, in sonography, I'm not a sonographer. I never did. Well, no, I never did much sonography. My wife is a sonographer. Uh, So you can stop talking, but you can't stop communicating. Yeah. And from the work I did with uh, those women that have gone through those terrible times, they are the most terrible times when no one's communicating with them, no one's Mm. talking to them. So now I think in a lot of sonography practice, not all, but they, the paint, the, the uh, sonographer will tell you what's going on. Um, the sonographers are absolutely expert in diagnosis. They're not so good at prognosis. So, you know, you can say, look, I can't see the baby's heart. I don't think the baby, you know, and we'll even say, you know, I think the baby is dead. They go that way. Now, immediately the patient will start as well, what happens next? Yeah. Well, the sonographer doesn't really know that. That's not their level of expertise. Mm. Yeah. So we just found, you know, the, the absolute, I can still remember some of the women, the worst thing is in that situation when they're just put in a public waiting room after that. Yeah. And, you know, their emotions are all over the place and it's just dreadful. And even though this is a dreadful experience, they often rate that part as the worst of the whole thing. So they have to go around see the obstetrician, they probably have to have some kind of termination of the pregnancy and, you know, that can be very traumatic. But that part, the worst part, often the low part is recorded when they knew something was wrong, no one was talking and they were in a public planning room. Yeah. So we came up with the guidelines, you know, in that situation, put the patient and their partner into a private room and give them a pad of paper and a pen. And just say, look, we're going to arrange for you to go around and see the doctor in a minute. Uh, why don't you write down all the questions that you want to uh, ask the doctor? Because obviously, often they, you know, patients are completely traumatized. They go around to the doctor, they won't hear what's being said, and they think about the 20 questions they've got afterwards. So just making that into a, a more active, giving more control to uh, the patient and the partner, you know, just a little thing like that can have just an incredible positive impact in a very terrible situation. So that's one of the things that came out of PhD. Mm, Pete, you, you sound like you've been there, have you? No. No, we haven't. Um, oh, that's Peter. Oh, Peter, sorry. Sorry. Yeah. No, it just it was so weird listening to Scott talk then because Scott, Leon ribs me quite a lot about the fact that I have five children. And when my wife was pregnant with baby number four, we were, happened to be in Melbourne at the time and 
we had to get a particular scan at 13 weeks or whatever it is. And the doctor that we went to was a bit of a specialist for predicting the sex early on in the pregnancy. So that was fine. And then I said, well, I don't want to know. And she wasn't sure. So we said, just stick it in an envelope and we'll take it with us and we'll deal with it later. So I intentionally lost that envelope until the day before the baby was due. And on the day of the birth, we were sitting in the car park at um, Darwin Private Hospital, and I said, oh, I found something yesterday that that doctor gave us in Melbourne. And I said, the baby's going to be born in an hour from now anyway. Do you want to have a look at it? So she said, yep, sure, no problems. So we opened it up, and it said, congratulations, within 80% accuracy, you're having a girl. Now, we had two boys and a girl already, and we both went, oh, that's perfect, two and two, ties up beautifully, last baby, no problems, all good. So baby number four is born an hour later, and he's a boy. Mm. And so that's fine. The story should end there. But about a year later, my wife says to me, oh, do you regret not having a girl as the last one? I'm like, oh, not really. Anyway, that's how you end up with baby number five, Scott. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's an incredible thing, ultrasound. My, my wife, as I said, is a sonographer and, um, you know, she's also an academic sonographer or was an academic sonographer. She did a really interesting, uh, it, I'm not uh, I think a master's project, and I definitely went to see a lecture, uh, give a big public lecture on it, the social aspects of sonography. So if you think about it, most bodily functions have become medicalised. You know, everything's mm. medicalised. Um, childbirth has become medicalised. Dying has become medicalised. So these social things have become medical things. We could only think of one example where it had gone the other way. An ultrasound has gone from being a medical thing to a social thing. Mm. But when most people, not all, but when most people go along from the scan, it's a social event. They will bring their children, they bring their parents, and, you know, sometimes the sonographers get uptight because they've got five people in the room all looking, and it's, it's all about this is when they meet their child for the first time. It's a deeply emotional thing. You, you're seeing your child for the first time, yeah, and, and you want pictures of it. This is a social event, and some sonographers find that really difficult because it's kind of, Almost saying, stop enjoying it. This is serious. We're looking for terrible abnormalities. Stop enjoying yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it is that incredible uh, thing. So it's a fascinating part of medicine. Yeah, I also find the fact that um, between our first kids and at least the last, but possibly, you know, number four as well, we went from 3D imaging to 4D imaging. So it, it was just so lifelike, even though, you know, you're not going to see this little person for quite some time from the first scan through the last scan. But, yeah, 4D just made it so, yeah, ridiculously real. But and you said, I, I mean, is it, 
I'm just going to put the aircon on, but I'm being really careful not to show that I'm not wearing any trousers. <laughs> <laughs> like any good broadcaster, you're looking good on top. Hopefully that won't work too much. Yeah, so, um, yeah, the technology. When I first started in uh, as a radiographer, so back now, failed A-levels, trainee radiographer, ultrasound was just coming in. And we did, oh, oh, what was it? Anyway, this this thing, it didn't give you a picture. What you had to do, it was like almost like a pen, and you moved it backwards and forwards across the patient's abdomen, and it built up the picture of the screen over a number of things. Now, inside the transducer now, that thing is going around really quickly, and you don't have to do that. But in the first one, you went back. So you almost every patient had twins, triplets, or quadruplets, because between doing this, the baby was moving around and you were seeing three or four heads. Yeah. So, yeah. Classic. So, um, so you mentioned that your wife ended up being a stenographer, so she, she didn't do finished medicine, or what, what happened there? Uh, Anita was she's – in, she's the brains of the operation. She <laughs> is incredibly bright, much brighter than me. So she was at Guy's Medical School – um, did four years uh, of medical school. I think at the end of the second year, because she was one of the top students, they let her take a year out and she did what was called an intercalated BSc. So did a BSc, Bachelor of Science degree in one year in uh, immunotherapy, uh, monoclonal antibodies. Then she went ah, back and... Monoclonal antibodies, and that's a, je- a buzzword now, isn't it, with the <laughs> COVID? Yeah. It, it, it's funny because a few years ago she said to me, you know, that that research I did for that bachelor's was just, you know, waste of time. Like, you know, everyone thought monoclonal antibodies and uh, immunotherapy was going to cure everything. It never went anywhere. It was just a side thing. And, and then roll for probably another 15, 20 years. And, of course, it didn't – it wasn't a sidetrack. It all came back and it's the miracle cure for lots of cancers now. Um, but where were we? So, yeah, so she did that, went back into the clinical side, got to the end of year four of the medical program. So she had one more year to go and some awful person got her pregnant. Oh my goodness. Wow. Don't you hate that? Low down scumbag from a place called Burton Latimer got her pregnant. (laughs) And so, um, Anita took a year out and had the baby, Annika, I should say the baby, Annika <laughs> and daughter, uh, and then we found a childminder and, and Annika went with the childminder and I think Anita lasted three days and said, I, I just don't want to do this. I want to really look after this baby. So she quit medical school and uh, looked after Annika, and then we had Adam come along, our son, and she became a childminder. So the house was always full of kids, and she loved it. She, we were just talking about it the other over the weekend, and she said probably that was the happiest period of my life, you know, when I was childminder. So uh, then she uh, – what happened next? Uh yeah, then when we came to Australia, no, no, when we went to Lancaster, 
she, because she had a Bachelor of Science degree, she trained to be a school teacher. So she did a, a graduate diploma in teaching and became a school teacher and taught in the north of England. When we came to Australia, uh, she couldn't get a job as a teacher in Wagga. They churned out so many teachers from Charleston Uni. They were, you couldn't get a job for less than money. Or if you could, she went and taught in a couple of really quite, probably shouldn't say this on the podcast, but quite strange religious schools that had some very strange ideas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But anyway, let's not go there. But so, and an opportunity came for her to go in and train to be, to do ultrasound. And that was quite unusual because normally you have to be a radiographer first, but because she had a, uh, a bachelor's of pathology, she, she went and did that and became a sonographer and, um, you know, worked up and became a chief sonographer and then came into the university. And on the, the year she retired, she was voted uh, by the Professional Society Ultrasound Educator of the Year and then sonographer of the year. So I'm really proud. So that she's she's a, she's had an interesting journey, which has really been following me around and having to rechain retrain for something new every time I got a different job. But so, so let's talk about that move because the, the the UK move to Australia. What um, triggered that? You you said from the beginning, you know that that's what uh, Anita wanted to do. Yeah, it w- was was that the plan all along, or did something happen? Uh, look, I think a few things happened, Neon. First of all, uh, I love England. I loved England. You know, I, I just feel this very strong connection with England and never thought I would live anywhere else. But we did come here on holiday. So we came here and we travelled a lot around Australia. And uh, there was an incident that happened near town, the Billabong Sanctuary near uh, Townsville. We'd, hoard it, we'd hired one of these rent-a-wreck uh, camper caravans, uh, car- campers. So we went to pick it up. And when we went to pick it up, it was a real wreck. And the woman said, the clutch has gone on it, but they're going to go and fix the clutch. And I said, well, when will it be ready? This is about 8 o'clock in the morning. And... She said, well, it won't be ready. It's about four o'clock. It's going to take a while to fix. And we said, well, what do we do? And she said, well, just down the road a bit, there's the Billabong Sanctuary. Go and show the kids all the animals down at the sanctuary. So we said, how far is it? And she said, oh, about 20 kilometres. And we said, well, how are we going to get there? And she said, oh, take my car. And she went and took all the groceries. She had all the groceries in, took it out and just gave us the to her car. Now, that just would not happen in the UK. Even my brother wouldn't lend me his car. <laughs> That's um, very true, actually. And suddenly I, I suddenly looked at these people called Australians and an incredible bunch and just thought, you know, this could really be home. And uh, so decided, yeah, let's do it. Let's go to Australia. You only live once. So I thought I was a... I think I was a dean of a no a dean of a faculty at that stage at Lancaster, uh, and we so wanted to come to Australia that I thought, well, I'll, I'll go backwards. I'll either get a very junior academic job or even go back 
X-raying people, do that for a while and try and break into education again. So started to look around. In the meantime, this is a long, sorry, probably very boring story. In the meantime, we were doing all this work in Canada, uh, in Toronto. My faculty was doing all this and we were working with an institution there and it was all going really well, mainly in medical imaging. And then I got a phone call one day um, from uh, the woman that was running it to say, basically, we don't want you anymore. You know, we don't want this uh, partnership with your university anymore. And I said, well, why not? You know, things are going kind of so well. And she said, well, the problem is you're, you can really only offer medical imaging. And there's this Australian university that can offer us the full range of health programs. But one thing they've said is they won't let us be, it's an exclusive arrangement. If we go with them, we're in it for everything, including medical imaging. So I'm really sorry we're going to have to cancel that. And I was livid because I've been working with these. And I said, well, which university is this? And they said a university called Charles Sturt University. And I was a little bit fiery back then. Now I'm very mild and meek. <laughs> right. So I thought, right, bloody dirty diggers. I'm going to sort them out. So I found out who the dean who had negotiated this with, a guy called uh, David Babersby. And I, I rang him up. And uh, I told him what I thought of him, you know, that we'd been working with this place for years. We've got this great partnership. You've just come in. I think it's really unethical. And, yeah, and I just went on. And he kind of just listened and um, kind of said, so, well, that's the way it is, buddy, you know. Anyway, that was the end of that. But two months later, I'm in the office upstairs and the reception rang up and said, there's a guy here says he's from Wagga Wagga and wants to speak with you. <laughs> he's taking it personally. <laughs> where the hell is Wagga Wagga? And anyway, so I went down and there's this guy there uh, with a broad Yorkshire accent and he says, hi, I'm from Charles Sturt University and uh, David Battersby asked me to call in. And he's asked me to tell you that there's a dean of school job coming up and he'd be really pleased if you applied for it. Oh, wow. So uh, I did. Uh, did the interview about 3 o'clock in the morning, got the job, and David Battersby then become, became one of my closest friends. <laughs> he, he put me on to my first, first vice chancellor's job and has been a great mentor for me for many years so weird how things turn out Mm. so you moved from the uk straight to wagga 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 never 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 call wagga 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 i love it (laughs) (laughs) i've been great story i've got i've got an aunt in wagga as a matter of fact my sisters lived there for a little while so uh, i'm familiar with wagga beach (laughs) 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 <laughs> I don't know if you know this, Peter, but there's this uh, thing in Wagga that the tourists, you tell them, go down to Wagga Beach, which is a beach on the river. Yeah. And, and they, about 2 o'clock in the afternoon, they release water from the dam and it makes a wave. Right. <laughs> people get on the front of this wave and they surf all the way down the Murrumbidgee River. Yeah. And at 5 o'clock, they all go through... Uh, nice go through Wagga Beach. So there's all these tourists waiting for this (laughs) 
mystical wave to come through. So what year was that, Scott? Oh, that would have been uh, uh, 98. 98, right. Yeah. Interesting. So, and Wagga gets extremely hot in summer and, well, probably not that cold for you, but it gets cold in winter. Liam, you live in Darwin and you're moaning about other people's weather. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's, a, there's tropical heat and then there's just that dry heat. Mm. And the dry I, I heat remember walking across the car park and, God, it's a bit warm today, and there was an headline in the a paper the next day, 47.8. It was oh, a record. Yeah. Yeah, it gets a little warm there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So uh, you spent a few years in Charles Sturt University. Isn't that interesting? So how many years were you there for? Oh, not long. Uh, about three, three and a half. Interesting. Right, right. And, and, and what was your title there? Uh, first of all, I was Dean of uh, Imaging Sciences, but then we merged some schools and I became Dean. No, no, I wasn't Dean. I was Head of School, Head of School, and then I became Head of Clinical Sciences. Right. Which was a big school, yeah. And so after three, and, and your kids, how old were they, they at that time? Oh, when they came over, uh, how old would they have been? I don't know. Uh, Amica had just started in secondary school and Adam was a couple of years younger, yeah. Okay, and they were happy to move to Australia? I know, never asked them. <laughs> <laughs> That's smart. Yeah. yeah. No, I think they were, uh, yeah, they were very happy. They, they loved Australia. They literally, when their foot touched the ground at the bottom of the steps, all their accents went and they oh, did it. immediately got an Australian accent. So no, uh, that was, yeah, very good for them. I think it's been a great move. So, you know, it's been good. Interesting. And, and did you realize how far Wagga was from Sydney and Melbourne? Uh, no, and it's it's an interesting thing because when you're recruited from overseas, I think it's much easier. So let's say that you're in Wagga Wagga or even Wyala. <laughs> it's much easier to recruit staff from the UK or India or America or anywhere. It's much easier to recruit them to re- than recruit people out of Sydney, Melbourne yes. or Brisbane. Yes. Because when you're recruiting someone from Sydney into Wagga Wagga, you're recruiting them to Wagga Wagga. When you're recruiting them from London, you're recruiting them to Australia. Right. Yeah. Yes. And we, we, we love Wagga. I mean, yes. Wagga was really great, friendly people. I mean, we've just taken on a, a here in Darwin a uh, dean, an incredible dean of nursing and midwifery. Well, I met her in Wagga Wagga years ago. We worked together in clinical sciences and mm-hmm. here she, now here. Interesting. So three years there and then where did you head off? Uh, off to Waiella in South Australia. Oh, and that was a culture shock for sure. Loved Waiella. Waiella uh, didn't stay there long. Uh, <laughs> but again, mate. Incredible friends, uh, incredible Aboriginal friends out there. And, you know, what is a place of contrast? They call it city of contrast. So if you walk to the lookout and you look to your right, you see the most incredible coastline in the world. Beautiful blue water. You can see dolphins swimming off it. Just pristine. Yep. 
turn to the left and you see a picture of hell. <laughs> you see the steel, they, they built the steelworks yeah. in hell and all the dust has turned everything red uh, and it's the most incredible industrial landscape that you could wish to find so close to the middle of the city and it is that city of contrasts and uh but I loved it. I, you know, I'm a pilot, so I used to fly backwards and forwards to Adelaide, and I had a little ultralight that I used to fly up and down the coast, scaring myself to death. Sorry, <laughs> you, you, you missed that part of your story. That's just so, for the weekends, Leon. Yeah. But so you got your license when, while you were in the UK or over here? I did a lot of flying in the UK, uh, but I didn't get the license. I, and then when I came here, I did a lot of gliding. A wogger, I did a lot of gliding. Uh, then I've got an ultralight license and then a full pilot's license. So I've often used that for work flying between campuses. So that's always been good fun. And so why what, I, can you fly? What are you, what are you rated? Uh, I can fly anything up to a six seater single engine airplane. Yeah. Right. And, and have you ever had a plane or, I mean, how did you? Yeah, we've, we've always owned planes, really, since we've been in Australia. So I think all together we've had uh, four different kinds of aeroplanes, but we haven't got one at the moment. Uh, much more difficult flying up here in the top end. It's probably Why is that? Oh, weather. I mean, oh, okay. weather's pretty tough up there. So you used to fly from Wyala to Adelaide, huh? Yeah, Wyala to Adelaide most of the time. Uh, and that then would what, cut uh, your, your, your chair a lot, wouldn't it? <laughs> it sure does. Looking at this geography here. <laughs> My goodness. I've done the drive and I'd much rather fly it every day of the week. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, the flying's really good. I mean, you're flying over, it's a little bit iffy flying over Spencer Gulf. I used to have an old plane that was made in the same year I was born, so it was an old. 40 or 50 year 40 year old plane i think back then or 50 year old plane yeah if it coughed a little bit over mate the concentrated the mind a little bit <laughs> right and so you weren't there for too long you were saying no no, no about three years again that's yeah. right and, and same in clinical or something else no no that was i was dean of the, the campus so uni sa had a campus there which was fantastic because it you know everyone in adelaide at uni sa forgot they had a campus there so i could just be <laughs> there like little little vice chancellor doing whatever i want and well out of sight and out of mind so that was good fun right and after three years what did you do next then I went up to James Cook University. Oh, wow, uh, that's a big change. Yeah. Much better weather too. And so you uh, finally got to Town Townsville. So I got to – well, I, I was in Cairns, so I was head of the Cairns. So I went there as uh, Pro Vice-Chancellor Academic Planning and Development. Uh, sorry, Pro Vice-Chancellor Cairns Academic Planning and Development and left as – Deputy Vice Chancellor, International and Services. So, build up the empire built while I was there. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, and uh, so, so uh, international students. That, that was the uh, emphasis there. Yeah. So I, I, I took on the international portfolio. So I spent a lot of time overseas. Uh, you know, just living out of a suitcase. I used to go around the world twice a year, you know, five or six week trips around the world and then lots of trips in between. Did you fly yourself? 
No, no, I got quick jets to do that. So, uh, yeah, that was a really interesting time. It, it, it's really good. If you're, gonna, if you're ever in a position where you have to appoint a vice chancellor, if you're on the council of a university, go for someone that's been a DVC international. Because a lot of vice chancellors, when they first get the job, they haven't had the chance to travel much. So all they want to do is be on aeroplanes, going all around the world, being important as vice chancellors. If you get someone that's been a DVC international, they are so over travel, they don't want to go anywhere, and you can save yourself a lot of money. <laughs> so, so your job was to fly around the world and attract students to to the university, was it? Yeah, there was a lot of marketing and research links and partnerships, and we developed a big campus in Singapore. So, yeah, the whole gamut of international stuff, yeah. Hmm. And, um, uh, and, and then from there, you ended up at uh, Charles De, uh, sorry, um, Central, Central Queensland. Queensland. So, so that was the big one. So I went to Central Queensland as a vice-chancellor. And if I wasn't the youngest, I was probably one of the youngest people ever to be appointed a vice-chancellor in Australia. Um, I think there were maybe one or two people that were younger before me, but I, so I was pretty young to get that job, uh, mainly because nobody else wanted it, I think. But, um, uh, yeah, so that that was great. So I was there for 10 years and just fell in love with that university and we just did things very differently. We just, you know, we just had a ball at that university and, uh, you know, in fact, our director of international was round tonight and I was telling her about some of the things. We had a, a really big program of social innovation and giving back. And I'd, I'd always felt very uncomfortable that we attract lots of students from the subcontinent, you know, India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Nepal, to here. Some of the poorest people in the world, some of these kids that come to us, their families have you know, just mortgaged everything. They've sold things to get their kid into education. And I think it's a it's not a good story that we're taking fees off of some of the least well-off people in the world to subsidise some of the richest, most privileged people in the world, Australians. Mm. So we very much had a philosophy that we really wanted to, to give back. So we were giving it back a lot to Australian communities, but we really looked for ways to give back in India and Nepal and Bangladesh, Thailand, and the students loved it. The Australian students loved it uh, and the subcontinent students loved it to know that some of their fees were going back to their own countries. And how, and how did you do that? Well, if I use India for an example, we formed a relationship with a group called uh, Salam Balak. Um, I think there was a, a, a film called Sal Salam Bombay, Salute Bombay, and the director's mother of that film actually built a children's home to rescue street kids in Delhi uh, and put the, gave, gave those kids a home and an education. And we formed a relationship with them. So we were sending our students out to work with the kids, teaching students, psychology, nursing. Um, but when these kids finished their secondary schooling, 
it's very difficult for them to go any further. So we thought, what about if we bring four of these kids? We can afford to bring four kids back to Australia, give them full scholarships and, uh, you know, really give them a start in life at university. Mm. And then someone came and said, well, yeah, we could do that. But there's a couple of problems with that. One, we can only pick, bring four people over. Two, we're taking these really smart kids and we're bringing them to Australia. They're probably not going to go back to India. What about for the same money to do four kids in Australia, we could put around 30 of these street kids through university in India. You know, if we give scholarships to Indian universities, we're not only giving back to these kids, we're also giving back to Indian institutions and they are much more likely to stay in India and not be a brain drain on India. So that's what we did. And for many years, we put about 30, 35 kids a year. These are street kids. So a few years before, they had been lost and bewildered on the streets of Delhi. And then here they were graduating as doctors, engineers, fashion designers, aeronautic. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of individuals as I'm saying these, aeronautical engineers, um, and then the amazing thing, we saw the, the aeronautical engineer started his own company and then went back to Salam Balak to recruit people from the children's home to go and work in his company. So there was that. In Nepal, we were running clinics in partnership with the Nepalese uh, health authorities. We were sending people way up into the Himalayas into on the side of Annapurna to run health clinics um and so there were lots of projects going on and we tried to get all of our students involved in those projects and you know it was very much part of you know i think there's too much in australia of seeing international students as cash on legs they're not you know these are the most courageous human beings you will ever meet. Go and go down and talk to our international students. They've all got an incredible story to tell you, you know, of how they've ended up in Darwin studying. They will tell you about their families. They tell you about the sacrifices of the village. Um, incredible human beings, most courageous. They've come to the other side of the world to study in a culture that is very different to their own, in maybe a, a second or third language. These are incredible people. And there's too many universities and too many teaching institutions that don't see beyond cash on legs. And um, so I think that if you are going to take international students, you have a real responsibility to make it really good for them, their study experience, make it really good so that they can get a career outcome that they want at the end of it, but also to give back to their communities. And if you can get it, and we did this at CQU, and I'm going to do it here at CDU, if you can get a culture of that going across a university, it transforms the universities. You know, you see a, dare I say, a happiness in the university and a sense of, uh, real meaning in the work we're doing so that uh, so i had a i had a ball at cqu and i'm starting that journey here at cdu 
Okay. Let's, I, I want to put a marker in that because there's a lot to talk about there in relation to CDU. But just to complete the circle here, you, you spent 10 years at CQU. What, what do you feel was your greatest achievement or have you already explained that? Oh, Salam Balak. I mean, you know, in fact, I, I was saying it today. I was showing some people some video. That that is the biggest achievement. You know, they're they're a kid. So we can't get our heads around this. I mean, it's impossible for us. But there are people on the subcontinent, and I'm sure in Africa and everywhere. But the, the people they love their children. So the, the the deep feelings we have for our children, that deep love. These are fellow human beings and they feel love just as deeply for their children. So I want to put that. But they're in such desperate straits. They're in such a desperate situation. They know this child is never, is not going to survive. There's no future for them. And as an act of absolute desperation at the end, the only thing they can think is to take a big gamble, a really big gamble, take this child and put it on a train. Abandon it on a train. That sounds really terrible, but you shouldn't think less of those parents because they, this is their last roll of the dice. There was no future to stay. Put them on the train. These trains go off and they end up in Delhi, Calcutta, anyway. And then these kids, and we're talking about three and four, five-year-olds, they get off the trains and they're just, you see them. Because let's go any day in Delhi, you can see them on the train station. And Salam Black goes along and finds them and rescues them and takes them to a reception centre and starts to, you know, really help them out. The girls, they reckon, the girls you've got to save in 20 minutes. If you don't get to them in the first 20 minutes, they are doomed. Mm. They are they are picked up by pimps and put into the sex industry. Goodness, uh, well, how do you spell this? S A L uh, Salam S A L A A M Balak. I think that's B A A L A K Salam Balak. I might be spelling it wrong. Mm. Does it come up? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I give you a story. Sonia, uh, Sonia was abandoned on a train like that. Interestingly, years later, she actually managed to track down her parents and go and talk to her parents who talked to her about that terrible decision they made to put her on a train. She was rescued by Salam Black, went through uh, school, and her biggest dream was to be a fashion designer. I mean, can you imagine this This little girl in a, a children's home in India and her dream was to be a fashion designer? She was really quite bright. Uh, we gave her a scholarship. She went to the best university in India to uh, do fashion design. She said often at night she would cry herself to sleep because there were all these really posh girls from very rich Indian families there. And here she was from a children's home. So that, that was tough for her. And, you know, in the school holidays, she went back to the uh, university holidays, she went back to Slambalak. Uh, but she said she was going to be strong and she got through this, and she did. Mm. She got a job in one of the top fashion houses in India and now spends most of her time in Paris designing. I mean, how good is that? How, uh, uh, how you know, you know, I love, I love, being involved in education of Australians and British people, 
but there's nothing that can come close to actually um, being involved with that transformation from being a street kid to being a fashion designer or an engineer or a doctor or whatever. I mean, nothing in the world can beat that, being involved with that stuff. And when you get how Australian students involved with that, that's life-changing for them as well. Hmm. Hmm. So you retired in 2018. I retired. I, I got my pipe. Yep, you got. I did. Nine, nine, nine year and three quarters years. Nine, uh, four years. Yeah, and then um, did you still stay at CQU or in sorry in Rockhampton or did you move? No, no we've always had a house on the beach in Cairns. So we went up to there, right? And uh, the pandemic hit, so that put pay to doing the big trip. So, you know, I'm serious. We sat up there for 18 months and it was quite pleasant, you know, trying to learn to play the guitar, trying to learn to knit. It came over me that really it wasn't, there wasn't enough meaning in that life. You know, there was no meaning. If you, if you saw what I was doing at CQU, that was a life full of meaning. Uh, and then suddenly there was no meaning <laughs> or very little meaning. And then it came over me in a way that actually probably sitting in a truck, driving it around the world, there probably wasn't enough meaning in that as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so why I, did you leave CQU? Did you have to leave CQU or was it just... Yes, they marched me out. Yeah. There, was a, there was an unfortunate incident with the college cat. No, no, no I, I got to the end of 10 years and... The, the university, when I got there, it was in a bit of a state. It, it, for one reason or another, it got itself in a mess reputationally, financially. Um, and so I'd spent sort of years getting it right, getting a really good team in. And I loved building it up and doing it all. And then we got to a stage where I was just running a pretty good university. I mean, things were rolling along really nicely. We, you know, everything was running well. There were minor crises, as you always get in the uni. But everything, it, 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 it become quite routine, you know. Uh, so I thought, you know, this is just, this is now going to be the same. We've built this university up. We've sorted it out. We've got all this incredible program. So it's time to do something else and, you know, and then started thinking about being on that truck in the Sahara, all our dreams of travelling. So Anita and I just said, yeah, that's, and it was wonderful because I went out right on a high. Mm. So I, I, you know, I made sure I announced my retirement a year in advance. Mm. So I spent a whole year just going from one goodbye party to the next. <laughs> we, in the end, we had 26 campuses. We built 26 campuses around Australia, and uh, every one of them had a farewell do. Uh, so, <laughs> so it was great. So I had a wonderful last year in that job, uh, but then just felt, you know, I, I was... I was 57, 56 or 57. So just really wasn't ready to, uh, you know, do the retirement thing. Yeah, right. So one thing led to another and here I am. And so how did you, how did the CDU job come up? Uh, Well, I got contact. There was, uh, did you know Barney Glover? 
Uh, well, I know of him. Yeah. No, of him. Mm-hmm. Barney was the VC up here, and he's he's always been a really good mate of mine. We both became VCs at the same time. He got VC up here, and I became VC at Central Queens, and so we we knew each other really well, and we we shared a lot of. Um, we always had lunch if we were in the same town and shared all the mistakes we'd made as new vice chancellors, and that was so. And uh, he had a few health problems and he needed to be off work for a while. So he said, look, do you fancy coming down to Western Australia, acting as VC for a few weeks, and then if you want to stay on for a, we're looking for a senior deputy vice-chancellor, stay on for a while as uh, interim senior DVC while we recruit him for someone new. And I said, yeah, that sounds good. I've never lived in a big a big city in Australia, so we went down to Sydney, and uh, and r- I really enjoyed working for Western Sydney. It's right in the middle of Sydney, but it's a regional university, which is interesting. So I had a, a great time down there, and then the job came up at CDU, and Barney kind of said, "What you know? What do you think of this?" And I said, "Well, it's a uni I've always been interested in." He said, "Go for it, then. Why don't you go?" And so I applied for it. I guess no one else did, so I got it. <laughs> well, I mean, in some ways, it could have been a poison chalice because there was so much bad publicity uh, before you came, just in terms of uh, the, the the debt levels, and uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't know much about about it um, from a personal level, but I just remember reading, you know, articles and, and things like that. So. I think the media, look, I think the media would put it into this pigeonhole as this basket case university. And I don't think the university had really, it didn't know how to work with the media. But, so, uh, so, 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 say for example, uh, you know, there were courses being cut, particularly VET. I remember that going down like a lead balloon. Yeah, it went down like a lead balloon, but it just wasn't managed well. You know, there were courses with hardly anybody in them. And in the run of the mill of any university, they would be putting courses on, taking courses off and arranging what their offerings were. But this university just kind of completely mismanaged it and looked like we were closing down the whole event. They just weren't getting the story. They were scared of the media. So we've had a bad look. We've been getting, a, in the Northern Territory news, we've been getting a good run. A very good run in the last year. Lots of really good stories. But one thing I said to the NT News and Raffaella at the news, I said, I'm going to bring you up with good news, but if we ever we have bad news, you'll hear it first from me. I, so today I rang her up and said, Raff, I've got bad news about the university and I want you, I'm going to be completely open. You can ask me any questions. So this was a story that it's come to light that over a number of years, quite a lot of years, we have not paid our casual staff to the right amount. Oh, yes. So it's a, it's, a bit, it's a bit technical, but basically if a person came in for one hour and worked one hour on a Monday and then one hour a week, a, a day for a week, they've worked five hours. Mm. And because that hasn't been managed right, that's gone to payroll, and payroll has paid them five hours. So for the five hours they work, they get five hours of pay. But in our enterprise agreement, it says the minimum that you can work in a session is three hours. 
So if you've worked one hour a day all week for five days, you should have been paid 15 hours, not five. Hours. So we owe that person 10 hours of pay. Yeah, right. And we've got to go back six years and do this. Now, I'm just using that as an example. So there's some bad news. Yeah. I was the first person on the, uh, on the blower to, to the press to tell them about that. And so I, I, look, I, a lot of people criticize the media and the newspaper. I, I don't, they're doing their job. They're telling stories mm. and, you know, it's really nice to get positive stories. But you've got to be upfront when you've got a bad news story. And so, that the, but the university didn't understand that. They didn't understand and they'd hide. So, you know, when it was closing down some vocational courses, instead of getting out and explaining it and telling people what that was all about, they hid under the table. Mm. So guess what? Really negative stories get told. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Scott, uh, I came to the. In fact, the reason I live in Darwin is because of CDU, which which used to be NTU. Mm. Uh, now, Darwin wasn't even on my radar. I, I you know, I, I grew up in Perth. Uh, I went to uh, UWA, and uh, at the end of '89. Um, I had a, a degree in economics and no job. And I was working at the university at UWA, just in the admin area. And a friend of mine who was on vacation was, was working there as well. He was, he was um, on a uni vacation. And he was studying law in Darwin. But he was from Perth. He was, in fact, a Vietnamese refugee. And... So, you know, he said, why don't you come to Darwin and study law? I mean, there's nothing else to do here, right? <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I did. You know, I jumped in my car and I drove up with my best friend and we came to Darwin and I had $300 in my wallet or in my bank account. And, you know, Darwin was the land of opportunity, honestly. Like, I was walking down to the what was then called the Commonwealth Employment Service to enroll for, uh, you know, um, benefits. And I looked up at a sign on the way down to, to the CES, and it was Northern Territory Superannuation Office. And that's what I'd been working at, at UWA. Uh, I was working in superannuation. So I just walked in there. Uh, and I remember uh, seeing the guy, I think his name was Jeff Cook from memory. He was a Kiwi. Uh, he was in charge of HR. And I just said, look, I've just arrived in Darwin. Uh, here's my CV. I've got a degree uh, and I've got experience in superannuation. And I remember his exact words to me was, were that we should be able to find something for you here. <laughs> right. And... I was there on a short-term contract for six weeks or something like that. And in that time, um, I saw a job advertised at the university, research assistant to the dean of the faculty of business. And the dean of the faculty of business at that time was a fellow by the name of Len Greenwood. And uh, I applied for that job and I got that job. And I was completely astonished that I had my own office right next to the Dean's 
and he didn't really want me to do very much. <laughs> he just had some funding for the job and and he had to use it or lose it. Mm. So, um, you know, I did a bits and pieces here and there, but by and large I was left to my own devices. So I started lecturing in economics, tutoring in economics, um, and and studying law. And and the reason why I tell you that story is because I remember what it was like 30 years ago. It mm. was amazing. It was really amazing. There was no uh, law school, uh, Northern Territory Law School. It was run by the University of Queensland. So, in fact, even though I have never set foot in the University of Queensland, my degree says University of Queensland, Bachelor of Laws. And... Uh, and the lecturers were all from the University of Queensland. That they, they flew up here, and it was it was amazing. And everybody at the law school was from somewhere else. Mm. You know, there were very few locals, uh, and they'd all come up here. And you know, a lot of them left and went back, but a lot, st- well, a few stayed, like me. Mm. And you know, you've got to credit the university for affecting. Darwin in a positive way by giving people the opportunity, well, giving people a reason to come here and then to stay here once they got here because they stayed long enough. And I just, I, I don't know whether the university has lost some of that over the years because there seems to nowadays be a lot of focus on international students, as you say. Mm. Uh, in fact, almost everyone I know at the university now is an international student, um, except for, <laughs> well, my daughter has started going to CDU as she started this uh, this month uh, doing a Bachelor of Teaching Good. or Bachelor of Education, I think it is. And I, I, I don't know that it has that same sort of campus feel that um, other universities have. Can you talk to that? Yeah, look, I, I think there's there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, Liam. I mean, it's interesting. We have just about the lowest proportion of international students in Australia. Right. So I think we're at about 13% of our students are international students. One three, 13%. One three. Goodbye. Where I came from, central Queensland, you would be looking somewhere between 35 and 40%. Wow. If you go to somewhere like Monash, I think it's, well, I'm not sure. It would be higher than that even, I think. Uh, right. Please, if you're listening at Monash, don't sue me if I've got that wrong. <laughs> uh, so, so, why the, so the big question is then because you said that most people you meet are international students, which I, I wouldn't disagree with you. So how come that we're seeing so many international students uh, on campus, which I, I think is great. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think they are, at the moment, they are the lifeblood of the university. I think CDU went the way of many regional universities that they looked and said it's very difficult to run a university on this population base. So if you have a look at uh, the Northern Territory, we've got about 250,000 people. Um, Probably the best report that's ever been done on university education was the Bradley Review that said to support for a university to survive, it needs 500,000 people. So we haven't got the people in the Territory to actually have a university. 
And many regional universities face the same issue, but probably not as severe as CDU. So you've got to get students from somewhere else. If you've only got 250,000, and there's two places to go. One is international, and we've spoken quite a bit about international. So I would like to see our international numbers come up to 20%, somewhere between 20 and 25%. So almost a doubling of our numbers on international students. But the other place that you can go and the place that CDU went is distance education. So if we haven't got those students in the territory, they've got plenty down in New South Wales and South Australia and Victoria, let's take the education to them. So uh, I think the law school was actually one of the first uh, courses in Australia to go to distance education at CDU. It was a real trendsetter. And suddenly you get lots of students and definitely CDU did and lots of uni regional universities suddenly get lots of students who are studying at a distance and then that went on to online, which is on the face of it looks good. But what you find is that you get your local students will turn up uh, to the campus. They will spend the first couple of weeks on campus and then they suddenly realise they don't have to come on campus because everything they can do online, all of their, everything, or definitely all their lectures, but a lot of other stuff is all online. Hey, this is quite convenient. I can work. I can go off and work. I can study when I want. The lecturer has now got an on-off switch and a reverse switch, and it's all very convenient. And what we find is a lot, and I'm talking about a very high percentage of our Darwin students who might be in, sitting in the street next to the university are studying online. Now, what that does is kill campus life. Yes. And if, you know, if you walk around CDU at the moment, it is pretty dead. I, you know, I'll admit that. If you walk around a lot of regional universities, they all kind of look and feel like that. So we don't want them to look and feel like that. We don't want the only students who are around campus are the international students because they have to be there. You know, they have to study face-to-face. -face. So we are looking at how we rejuvenate the campuses. Uh, definitely at Casarina, we've got works. Uh, we're going to spend about $25 million over three years on Casarina. And part of that is remodeling it to try and funnel the people that are there into the centre so there is more of a student life in there. Uh, we're looking to deliver more courses where we say there isn't an online option mm. or this, for this cohort. Definitely nursing is looking to bring students back on campus. Uh, a lot of the health programmes, if we get our medical programme, uh, we're looking at an academy of the arts try and bring many more students who literally have to be on campus. So I kind of agree with you. It's very easy to look back 30 years ago and see these really bubbling, vibrant campuses and something's gone wrong. I mean, it, it, you know, that we've probably got a lot more students. We've probably got double, maybe even triple the number of students than we did 30 years ago, mm. but they're invisible and that's a problem yeah. for us. Yeah. It's a problem for your daughter. 
because, you know, for your daughter, you know, she's going to university. We want that vibrant student life. We want her to be involved in that. Yeah. And it, it's difficult. So we are doing, you know, we are hopefully over the next five years, we will try and get more vibrancy on the campuses. So let me ask you this question then, because, I mean, you say that, but then I'm thinking, okay, but then the university has just been, you know, this whole cities deal where you've got, you're bringing the university into the city, into the CBD. I, I've honestly never understood that, Scott, because, you know, UWA for me, despite the fact that the teaching was pretty crap, I've got to be honest with you, right? I mean, the, the lecturers there were academics. that the, They really weren't geared to teaching. They were very, very – I had far better lecturers in law school than I ever did in economics. The group, group of eight attracts such intelligent, bright people. Really, the teaching doesn't matter that much. These oh. kids – Succeed wherever they are. Yeah, but you know what, what was ama- what was amazing about UWA was one the campus. I mean, God, I just love that campus, right? And just hanging out—that's yeah. where you learned. You know, whether you were in the engineering faculty or the arts faculty, or you know, you you were just mingling with other students, exchanging ideas, and you know, and growing up, and it was just. Amazing, Scott. It, it, it is, uh, and I can say that. And um, Hilary Winchester, who works for us at the university, uh, she went to Oxford. And I, I tell her, I say, I really envy you that experience, to go to Oxford or to go to one of the group of eights and doing that hanging out stuff must have been amazing. But you've got to also remember um, – I'm, I'm not sure about your personal background, but a lot of those kids uh, on those campuses of, you know, UWA 30 years ago came from pretty wealthy backgrounds. I mean, their families were pretty wealthy. They were on the campus, not all of them, uh, but back then, you know, I think they were, you know, if you weren't wealthy, you could get really good grants and you could have time to hang out. You know, you could sit around on the campus, smoking your pot, talking about philosophy and having a real ball. Well, there's been a change. There's been a, you know, far more people go to university now. So, you know, back then it was a small proportion of the population that went to uni. Now we're seeing the majority of people, majority of people leaving school go to university. So there's far more people going in and there's a lot more people going in there from less wealthy backgrounds that really are working their way through university and are having to work all the hours got sense seeing them through university. So, you know, the ones that have to come on campus, they come in, they, well, they do their lecture online, they come in, they do a tutor- their tutorials, they nip to the library, do whatever they do on the library, then get in their car and go. And that's that's the normal life. Actually, yeah. sitting around, and it's sad. It's sad, yeah. but it, it's it's life. It's interesting. I mean, we could talk about the vertical campuses in the city. You know that that moves. It's interesting. How's that going to work? How, how's that going to make any life better? 
Well, it probably will. Well, you know, will it have any impact on Casarina? That's the big question. Mm. And, you know, I think having those big vertical campuses, university like Western Sydney is really moving, actually closing campuses down and moving them into those big vertical campuses. And they are uh, on the whole pretty full of life and they're right in the middle of the community. So the community is in there as well using it and they are pretty good places what we've got to be really careful i mean it's really difficult so we're going to be i mean on the face of it we're going to have the waterfront campus the big city precinct campus palmerston campus and casarina campus yeah. in a, a city of what wow. 120 130,000 people it's tough i mean it it is really tough uh, you know i i can't see the waterfront campus carrying on as campus. So we'll have to make some decisions about that. But that still leaves the education precincts, Casarina and uh, Palmerston, which is going to be a major challenge for us. Yeah, I think um, so. I think but, so. You know, that's, but then again, I think that big campus is going to be a bit of a game changer. It will put Darwin on the map as an education city, and there's a lot of great things we can do in there. But... Uh, you know, it is going to be tough. Yeah. Um, look, I've got some questions uh, that I was talking to a couple of people mentioning, obviously, and we did promote the podcast, of course, and um, I was asking a couple of people if they had any questions that, you know, that they thought I should ask you. And and one, one question that was put to me was um, – what uh, well let's go through a few of these um what are your thoughts on the current relation between cdu and its alumni and are there any plans to strengthen the engagement between alumni and student and staff and that's certainly something that's close to my own heart yeah i think you gave me an ear battering about that <laughs> it sounds like leon <laughs> yeah uh, i think i ate under the table that night <laughs> Yeah, look, we need we have got a big advancement area within that. There is uh, alumni relations. We've just got a new guy in there, David, uh, who is looking after alumni relations. And I think it's something we've got to do more of. We've got to be linking with our alumni. We've got to be offering them something. You know, it's got, you know, what can they get? So I'm interested to see, you know, can there, you know, alumni scholarships for alumni's uh, children? Can we offer some scholarships for, uh, you know, members of alumni to come and do courses? We should be putting on, you know, we're, we're going to have a, uh, a lecture, public lecture by the ambassador from... Uh, Indonesia, we should be reaching out to our alumni, giving them first dips at the tickets for those things. So we should be doing that. I do get worried that, you know, I do meet people and they're saying that they're not contacted and they don't get anything from the university, whereas I know we are sending stuff out. So I don't think we've been that good at saying, do you get anything from uni? Yeah, I do. I do. Uh, from time to time, alumni stuff, I, I, I get that. But, you know, I'm not looking for anything from, from the university as such, as an alumni. Yeah. I'm looking to give back. Yeah. You know, I, I'm <laughs> <Well, it's>, looking. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm finding it hard to do that. 
Well, it's a two-way thing. And one thing that we don't do well mm. is we should be asking alumni to come back and teach. Students love it. Yeah. So, if you know, you're very current, you're out there, you've got a load of war stories that are very current from last week to get you in front of a class yeah. to do some teaching, even if it's just a guest spot for one hour in a course, come and do that. The students love it and it makes the course better. Oh. Now, we, I've been nagging the deans about that. Not a lot's happening, so I think we're going to have to formalise that internally. So getting that that chance to give back through integrating with the students, you know, maybe some mentor programs. There's a lot, look, a lot more we could be doing. Yeah, and look, uh, you know, I'm I'm a very fortunate person. You know, I I feel very very lucky and very grateful uh, to have had the opportunity to study law here. Uh, to be given a chance to have a career in law here. And even though I, I left Darwin for six years to go and further my career in Sydney, uh, you, you know, uh, I'm, I'm lucky to be working, to be a partner in one of one of the biggest law firms in the Northern Territory. And, and I'm, I'm looking, and I have the ability to use that uh, to help people that are looking for a leg up, that are looking for experience, that is lo- they're looking for um, uh, just not even law students. I mean, it was a couple of years before COVID. We were having we were working with some of your international students and bringing them into our boardroom and giving them a sense of what it feels like to work in an office environment in a in a in a you know in a, in a tall building would see views and things like that and just what it feels like to be in there. And and they were so grateful, you know, for that opportunity. And, I mean, all of these were overseas students. And as a, as a firm that has a migration practice, it pains me, Scott, to see – I mean, you, you talked about overseas students before with CQU, but it pains me to see the number of – overseas students that are graduating from CDU with no job uh, and finding it extremely difficult to find something in their chosen uh, line of work uh, or or study and they end up doing anything and everything but what they studied to do and I've tried I've I've helped a few people get jobs in, in their fields just using my connections but, but there's more than than, than I can than I can help. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that, Leon, because statistically, when we look, and these are government stats, yeah. we actually find our employment rates of our grads and internationals is yeah. higher than national average. So, well, a lot higher. We want to uh, internationals getting jobs from CDU is one of the highest in the country. So that's interesting. That that's what the stats are saying. That's what the government is saying. But you're seeing a different picture out there. So that's well, maybe maybe it's just amplified here because even though you're doing better than the national average, because we're in such a small population, <laughs> it, you know it is amplified. But I can I, I'm quite happy to sit down with you and show you my LinkedIn feed mm. and the number of people that have reached out to me, particularly accounting graduates, uh, you know, asking me to for help. Trying to get yeah yeah look I think I I think you'll see a big reduction in the number of accounting students uh, 
I think I think Australia was training too many accountants and too many accountants from overseas. But there's there's been some changes, as you probably know, in the migration world. So I don't think we will be seeing those. So you're really seeing a fall off in uh, the number of people doing straight business degrees, MBAs. They're, they're really in the decline of master and professional accounting. So, yeah, I, I think you, there is an issue there. Um, you're seeing people really much more interested in doing the uh, uh, digital sciences, and, and that's definitely where we're looking. But, yeah. But I mean, there are. I mean, there are a lot of jobs there. I mean, I picked up on something you said earlier. You know, you found Darwin to be the land of opportunity. I mm. think it is. Mm. I think what we've got to do is make sure that we link, you know, the people that we are bringing in from overseas to to where those opportunities are. Yeah. I mean, there's so many jobs in the construction industry at, what, at the moment. But oh yes, yes, yeah. uh, and, and 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 just things like aged care and. All those, you know, you, you have any kind of qualification in childcare or aged care, you know, you, you have more jobs than you know what to do with. Yeah. Um, so, all those, and yeah, cyber security is a really hot thing. If you've got cyber in your title, you Yeah. But what I was thinking, you know, Scott, uh, when you talked about alumni, and if I play, you know, if I think back to where I was when I first got my degree to where I am now, the biggest thing that I have besides experience is networks. Yeah. You know, and and so that's really what an alumni can can help CDU with. It's you know, it's just like the old boys club or you know what the private school students used to have or still have, you know. So do you get invited to alumni events? Do you actually get invited to physical events? I think I, I came to one um, that you uh, invited me to not that long ago. That one down at the waterfront? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, so, but that's, yeah. so that's not a regular thing? I mean, I, I, I'm... No, no. I, I don't think it is. But, you know, I would certainly, I'd love to have a guest lecture a spot, you know, in, in anything to do with law. Whether it's practical or whether it's theoretical, uh, you know, uh, it just it would be just so much fun, and there's so much to give, Scott. You know, because no, it's agree. not just technical; it is practical. And when I talk to you know the engineering alumni, they're telling me exactly the same. So we've got to do do something around that. Yeah, so, and there's some great engineers in, in Darwin. I got to tell you, there's there's I've met quite a few of them. They are. There's some astounding female engineers, mm. you know, and I could quite happily put you in touch with those people. Now, they're not alumni as such, technically. Some of the ones that I know at least aren't alumni, but they would there's, be. There's some really good alumni out there as yeah. well. Yeah. I think it's possible. We've just got to work how we work with them. We've got to do that. There's lots of there. I'm not going to sit here and just tell you everything's fantastic with the university and, Leon, I don't think you're right there. I think you are right. They're all things that we need to fix up. The, the great thing is we can fix them up. Yeah. Now, you recently uh, released your strategic plan. Uh, one of the questions that I was asked was, um, you know, how important are international students for the future of CDU? And why is there very little mention about them in the strategic plan? I didn't. I remember reading the strategic plan a little while ago, but is there no mention of international students? 
that's really interesting. Uh, that's really interesting. Maybe that is a good point. Because uh, I really like, have an indigenous, uh, a very strong indigenous. Uh, very strong indigenous. Uh, look, I think maybe it was an. Look, I think it's a great strategic plan. It gives us a real path to the future. I think it does talk in there in, grow, in growing international students, and it does talk a bit about international students, but it's not front and centre, central like Indigenous. I think the uni had a lot of criticism, and when we were putting it together, a lot of criticism was we, we were focused too much out of the Northern Territory. And uh, we weren't doing enough in the Northern Territory. So I think the STRAP plan does very much place the university in the Northern Territory. But it, it's a little bit of a contradiction, isn't it, given what you said previously about wanting to increase your international population from 13 to 26%? Well, 26, well, I said 20 to 25. I mean, that's still... 75% of your students or 80% of your students are going to be domestic. Yeah. And we've, you know, we can't, the focus, the focus has got to be on good quality education that l leads to a vocational outcome. That's what the students want. Uh, and really that has to be the same whether they're domestic, internationals, vocational students. So that's really the focus of the plan. Where they come from to do that, whether they come from, there probably is a bias there towards people from the territory, but even if they come from interstate or internationally, that should still be the aim. It's an interesting point. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, I wonder who asked that. Send me names. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, uh, the last one, the last question I wanted to ask you was about research. Uh, you know, research is an important part of any university. Um, are you seeing research students enrolling in CDU? Uh, is, is CDU going to have a, a research focus? Look, that, there's a really good news story there, which we haven't told about the university. So we've got an exclusive, Pete. Oh, no. I love it. No, it's not really. It's just what's – so Anita, my wife, she's still doing a PhD at CQU, and she wrote to me one day and said, hey, look at this. You know, CQU is now bringing in $23 million of external research funding a year. And I think a couple of few years back it was down at below 10, and they bought built, built it up to uh, uh, twenty. Three million for last year. I just wrote back to her and said, "Oh, CDU bought in sixty-five million last year." Right. Now that includes Menzies. Yeah. And Menzies is a controlled entity of the university, so it's part of the university, but very independent, has its own board, and it's it's fantastic. It's one of the jewels in the Northern Territory, but it is kind of part of the union. So together. We bring in uh, round about uh, 60, 63, 65 million. Just the university is up at about 27 million. It'll probably be up at 30 million this year in external research funding. So, and, and we're, and probably CQ is three times the size, three times bigger than CQ, and we're outperforming it. Um, if you have a look at our 
research completions, our PhD enrollments, they're, they're really strong. So research is a, a really important part of the university. It's concentrated in some areas of world excellence, obviously health and medical research through menses, environmental through real. Then you've got the Northern Institute, which is mind-blowing what that is doing uh, with Indigenous research. And then you've got the Molly uh, Water, Molly Water Guga Centre, uh, which is doing bringing in millions of dollars for looking at birthing practice on land. Added to that last year, we well, Northern Institute won two ARC grants, which is unheard of in a regional university for one centre to win two. And we've run all all the agriculture. We're out looking for four professors in agriculture at the moment, which is coming through the drought hub research. So research, we are we are a big player in research, keep well above our group. But again, we're probably not getting that story out there. Mm. That's very very interesting. Uh, when you talk about agriculture, we, we, Pete and I have had some conversations with the. Uh, people that are involved with the government and uh, mangoes, growing mangoes, you know, which is an amazing fruit. We all know that. Um, I, I haven't heard anything from the university about any any projects or any work that they've done in terms of that. Well, that agriculture area is one that we're just developing. So we've just got the funding from government for the drought huts. And we are out to look for four professors in that area. So it's an area we will be building up. Um, we've done quite a bit of aquaculture. The other thing we've done, we've formed, and I was talking to the vice chancellors at CQU and JCU today. So we've formed the Northern Alliance, the um, Northern Universities, uh, sorry, Northern Australian University Alliance. So the three universities are coming together. So you're going to see that brand, the Northern Alliance, being used quite a lot because the three universities can really work together. So if it's mango research, then uh, CQ is doing a tremendous a lot in that. Now, if, even if we haven't got the expertise in mangoes, we've got some mates down the road that have and they can come and work from our campus. Uh, if it's a lot, some of the aspects of marine science, we've got some mates in Townsville that are pretty good at that. They can come and deliver. Yes, yes. If they want something on, um, I don't know, on uh, the environmental science, then we've got the stuff in real that can go over there. So we're forming that alliance. Three universities come together. I mean, the three of us together are probably up there with uh, one of the lower group of eights when you combine right. our expertise. Yeah. yeah. And, and look, what about the, the student guild? I mean, I remember when I was at UWA, the student guild was a big deal. It was like student union, you know, and it just controlled the campus. They had parties. They had, you know, that was, that was one of the things that created that sort of campus life. D do you have a similar sort of thing there? The short answer is no, we don't. I think, I think there has been. Again, it's that regional universities. I think if you look at regional universities, looking back 30 years ago, they all had strong student association, guilds, unions or whatever. Uh, to a large extent, they've died off. I think they've died off for a number of reasons. One, again, is those students are going online 
and not coming into the campus, so they're not running those sorts of things. I think also there's been a bit of conservatism in the universities that some universities have manoeuvred them out and got rid of them because they're they're too. <laughs> I'm t- you know, I'm saying that how it is. I can, you know, I won't mention names, but I know universities that have really moved from that universe uh, student association to university council, yeah, and that's right. I think that's what's happened at CDU. Um, and I'm not sure that works. Yeah, Whether- that doesn't make sense to me, you know, because to, to me, I mean, there were so many groups and clubs you could join when you were at university, you know, and, and that's what fostered. And if, if you, you know, look at, for, for example, people like Peter Costello, you know, when he was at Monash, you know, he was part of this, uh, he, he was part of a, a student club and he got bashed and, you know, <laughs> he wore that as a badge of honour. And, you know, the, the, the whole political landscape and and, and <laughs> political thought. I mean, you mentioned politics earlier on in this podcast, you know. It oh, gives well, kids a chance to actually think and learn and be oh, exposed to ideas. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I don't know. Do you get my Friday emails? Of course, of course. I, I can't, I'm compelled to read it. I don't know why. <laughs> Well, Even when it's three pages long. <laughs> it's, it's really good to get to sleep. But someone, you know, because I was going on about uh, the Ukraine and Putin. And, you, yes. and someone wrote to me and was really saying, you shouldn't be talking about that. Universities shouldn't be getting involved in politics and making comments like this. And I said, I could I not. And they were upset because some of the students had stuck some Ukrainian flags on some of the notice boards and basically saying, well, this might upset our Russian students. Uh, No. No, this is, you know, these should be as... It's the hotbed of discourse, Scott. I I wish it was. I wish it, I really wish it was. They're not, I mean... I mean, some of the universities, some of the group of eight, some of the really big urban universities, you know, QUT, maybe some of the other bigger ones, you know, there is still that going on. But for a lot of universities that, you know, as I said, drive your car in, go and do your tutorial, nip to the library, get back in the car, go home, unload the library books and go to work. Oh, Scott. I hope you change that. I'd love to change that. You know, we really need to get that. And whether we actually do, you know, you've got me thinking now, maybe we should try and get a student union going again. You know, you know. I think so. I think you should. I mean, JCU, actually, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there, that was really interesting because I think, yeah. I think Cairns, that was all controlled by Young Labour. Yes. And down in Townsville, it was all controlled by exactly. the Young Libs. And that's and what a- you want. You want that happening, you know. I mean, I remember there was not a single week that went by that the student union wasn't doing something, right, whether it was Friday night, Saturday night movies, uh, that you know, they used to have a double feature movie at, at campus, which was like, uh, you know, like three bucks or something stupid, you know, you go in there and watch two. I remember watching some great movies there. In fact, I think I actually watched Wall Street there, in fact. Um, and then and then you had uh, the toga parties. Yeah, yeah, it just it was just 
it, it yeah. was, people wanted to be at university, you know, because it was always happening. And the ref <laughs> and, and the student no, tavern, cheapest beers. <laughs> well, I've got a petition on the desk at the moment um, with a few names on that want to reopen the bar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, look, I'm not a. I, ne- I I actually didn't discover the student tavern until I think it was in my last semester of university, and I thought, my God, this is a really happening well, place. You were unconscious and couldn't remember you'd been. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's that's what you do at university. You get out there and you have fun, and then you go and work, and then you say to your wife and your kids. They were the best years of my life. You know, that's what university should be. And that's what it should be. And sadly, it's not like that anymore. Whether we can get back to that or not, I don't know. And that is a big challenge, whether we can get – we're definitely putting money into it. We're definitely looking to get things going on campus. Whether we can take a uni back there or not, I don't know. I mean, we will give it a good try. Uh, well, Scott, I can tell you that I had three groomsmen at my wedding. One of them was my one of actually four. One was my brother. One was my best friend who drove up to Darwin with me from, and he was my best friend from school. And the other two guys were two guys that I met at university in my first week in college on campus. That's that's university. You know, that is university. Yeah, and we've got to get back to that. I mean, I think the international students are getting that because they are on campus. So that shows you when they're on campus. So there are a lot of clubs and societies at the uni. I mean, I, I was quite amazed. I went along to a day when they were all there. I was amazed how many there were. And got yeah, and I got invited the other night into the women's collective. Someone came, I was like, well, I was at the Bangladesh Student Association Women's Day thing, which was good. And then an Indian student came and said, would you mind popping into the women's collective? And I said, we've got a women's collective? <laughs> and I went in there, the most incredible group I've ever met. Oh, know, it's great. Amazing. It's great to hear that, Scott. Look, and I want to tell you, for the record, as an alumni, as a proud alumni of the university uh, and you know, someone who feels very, very uh, grateful for what the university has, has done for me, I am really willing and able to help in any way that I can. Do you know, I, I don't think you're alone and we've got to reach out and get you involved and sort of, you know, I think you're definitely part of the solution and we've got to do that. So I will definitely go and talk to uh, David who's running the alumni at the moment uh, and give him a little kick in your direction. All right. Well, look. This must be the longest podcast in the world. No, it's not. Don't worry. It's not the longest, but we've certainly used the most Latin words in this podcast (laughs) than any other one we've ever had. (laughs) Look, uh, we like to drill down on these things, Scott, and uh, we take the opportunity and the time to do that. So it's been really great to have you on the podcast. We've learned a lot about you. Um, we've learned uh, about what you, you know, what your aspirations are, what you'd like to see for the university. We've discussed some contentious things, uh, and we want to want to keep this conversation going because you know we we love the university. I mean, look at this: my second generation, my my daughter's going to uni- this university. My wife went to this university. Yeah, look, this yeah. this university can be great. I mean, it's it's Australia's most unique university in the most unique place. It can be one of Australia's great universities. 
And, you know, you know, we, I'll always be open. I'm not going to give you some sugar-coated, oh, Leon, you're wrong there, everything's wonderful at the uni. Uh, you, you know, we, there's a lot of work to be done. But if we put that work in, uh, it can be one of Australia's truly great universities. It really can. That's a great way to end. Okay, thanks very much. Thanks, Scott. Really enjoyed it. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Scott. Great to meet you. Yeah, great to meet you. That was Scott Bowman on the Territory Story podcast. We'll catch you again next time. You've been listening to the Territory Story podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story podcast on all leading podcasting platforms or go to territorystory.com. The Territory Story podcast. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.